Our second reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 8, verses 12 through 26. Hear the word of God. Tell the Levites to put their hands on the heads of the bulls. One bull will be a sin offering, and the other bull will be used as a burnt offering to the Lord. These offerings will make the Levites pure. Tell the Levites to stand in front of Aaron and his sons, then give the Levites to the Lord. They will be like an offering. This will make the Levites holy. They will be different from the other Israelites. The Levites will belong to me. So make the Levites pure and give them to the Lord as a special offering. After you do this, they can come and do their work at the meeting tent. The Israelites will give me the Levites. They will belong to me. In the past, I told every Israelite family to give me their firstborn son, but now I am taking the Levites in place of these firstborn sons from the other families in Israel. Every firstborn in Israel, man or animal, is mine, because I killed all the firstborn children and animals in Egypt, and I chose to take the firstborn sons to belong to me. But now I will hide... No, but now I will take the Levites in their place. I will take the Levites in place of all the firstborn sons from the other families in Israel. I chose the Levites from among all the Israelites, and I give them as gifts to Aaron and his sons. I want them to do the work at the meeting tent. They will serve for all the Israelites. They will help make the sacrifices that make the Israelites pure. Then no great sickness or trouble will come to the Israelites when they come near the holy place. So Moses, Aaron, and all the Israelites obeyed the Lord. They did with the sorry. They did with the Levites everything that the Lord commanded Moses. The Levites washed themselves in their clothes. Then Aaron gave them to the Lord as special offerings. Aaron gave the offerings that covered their sins and made them pure. After that, the Levites came to the meeting tent to do their work. Aaron and his sons watched them. They were responsible for the work of the Levites. Aaron and his sons did what the Lord commanded Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, This is a special command for the Levites. Every Levite man who is 25 years old or older must come and share in the work of the meeting tent. But when a man is 50 years old, he will retire from this hard work. Men who are at least 50 years old will be on duty to help their brothers, but they will not do the work themselves. That is what you must do for the Levites so they can do their duty. This is the word of the Lord. The spotless lamb of God. That's the, that's the name of the name of this sermon, the title of this sermon, the spotless lamb of God. Do you know what that means? There are some really smart people who know some really complex things. 
And when they explain them to ordinary people, to people who have not done all the work that's required to understand those things, what they do is they use images and metaphors and allegories. The spotless lamb of God is a metaphor. Maybe you were taught that the atom is like a solar system. The nucleus is in the middle, and it's like the sun. It's extremely massive, and the electrons orbiting around the nucleus are like the planets, almost weightless. That's a useful image, a useful metaphor, but it's not precisely true. There are important differences between the solar system and atoms. We also use uh, metaphors in our ethical thinking. All of us know Aesop's fables. Perhaps we remember the tortoise and the hare, the slow tortoise, the speedy hare, but in the end the tortoise wins the race. The moral of the story is slow and steady wins the race, which is sort of true, but not precisely because sometimes slow and steady still doesn't win the race. Once every five years or so, I will read a book on the latest theories in physics. And the most recent one I read was uh, Lee Smolin's book, What is Wrong with Physics? Smolin's is the real deal. He has a doctorate from Harvard. He taught at all the right places. Now he's part of what's called the Perimeter Institute, which is Canada's version of the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies. His book was fascinating. He's a good writer. Of course, there's a lot of mathematics that goes into doing physics, and all of that mathematics is lost on the average reader like me. So when Smolin writes, he uses metaphors. The theoretical physicist, when explaining his research to a layperson, cannot use the math, so he has to use images. But what kind of images or metaphors do you use for bosonic string theory, which posits that our world is in fact 26-dimensional? How do you draw that on the chalkboard? Theoretical physics which asks the biggest and deepest questions in the natural sciences, is an unsettled discipline. There is wild disagreement in that field, a field that's filled with very smart people. All too often we think that our generation is so smart that we finally figured everything out and that everyone who was before us, they, well, they were stupid. We look back at the scientific disputes of the past time and we chuckle, ha, ha, ha. What kind of knucklehead would invent epicycles to describe the motion of planets? Well, we don't have everything figured out. Actually, there are many things that we haven't figured out. At present, there is no agreement among scientists about the basic nature of the universe. Think about that. Really smart people have not been able to decide if the universe is 26 or 11 or 4 or other options, dimensions. At present, there are so many competing models of the universe and metaphors about the nature of matter among scientists who work on that stuff full time. There are so many competing metaphors and models that you would need an encyclopedia just to catalog them all. Even doctoral students in the field don't understand all of the proposed options because there isn't enough time to study everything. So let me raise an even higher problem. Really smart 
people doing professional science do not agree about the basic nature of the universe, but what I want to know about is this. What is the relationship between our universe, however it may be constituted, what is the relationship between our universe and the maker of our universe? Now that's an advanced question. Complex, complicated, deep. And when we try to talk about this relationship between God and the universe, between the creature and the creator, we are driven to, we are forced to use images and metaphors and allegories like the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This Sunday is the first Sunday of the month and it means that we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament or an ordinance, but it is also an image and it is a metaphor. And there is a multi-dimensional layering in this image or this metaphor, all of which has to do with the relationship between the creator and his creation. All of you know, of course, that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the crucifixion of Jesus. Some of you might know that the Lord's Supper is also a reappropriation, a reinterpretation of the Passover meal which itself was a memorial of the exodus of the Jews out of Egypt. As an image, as an enacted parable, the Lord's Supper has many layers. I've mentioned just two. But our reading from Numbers chapter 8 mentions deeper layers of this Sacrament. We could study the Lord's Supper for the rest of our lives and never get to the bottom of all that it means. Dr. Dan Bramer wrote his dissertation on the Lord's Supper. It is a deep and complicated subject, and part of what the Lord's Supper means is found here in Numbers chapter 8. We cannot properly understand the Lord's Supper without understanding Numbers chapter 8. And that's because the Lord's Supper points to the crucifixion, and the crucifixion itself is an enacted metaphor which points to a system of sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament. The meaning of the New Testament expression, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the meaning of that expression is in fact rooted in the Old Testament, which is why Christians read both Testaments. We don't understand the New Testament if we haven't read the Old Testament. We don't understand what Jesus was talking about or what his disciples were talking about if we don't understand the system of sacrifices in the temple or the tabernacle which formed their religious life. In our reading this morning, we heard about grain offerings. We heard about sin offerings. We heard about burnt offerings, and we heard about something that our translation calls a special offering. That's not a great translation. The typical translation is the wave offering. Okay? Let's do the wave. Okay? This is the wave. Okay, this is the wave offering. Okay? We'll talk a little bit more about this because there's a wave. The wave offering is very important. 
it would be a, it would show a real lack of curiosity on our part if we did not want to understand those four kinds of sacrifices. But worse than that, if we don't understand those four kinds of sacrifices, we actually don't understand the Bible. And we don't understand the Gospels. And we don't understand the New Testament because every word of the Bible has been written by men who did understand these kinds of sacrifices on a regular basis. And if we want to understand what John the Baptizer was talking about when he looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, well, we have to understand Numbers chapter 8. Our reading from Numbers this morning tells us about the final preparation for the beginning of God's mandated worship in the tabernacle. God freed his people from slavery and the world. God took his people into the wilderness to free them from distraction and to get their attention. God gave his people a set of instructions about how to live uh, and how to worship him at Mount Sinai and central to the worship of God in the tabernacle and then later in the temple in Jerusalem are these sacrifices which are understood in a metaphorical, allegorical, imagistic way to remove the stain of sin from the people and to make them holy. What God is teaching in the sacrificial system is that our essential difficulty with God is our sin. Now, sin takes two different forms. One side of sin is willful and intentional. We know the law and we decide to not follow the law, and there's a system for dealing with that. The other side of sin is unintentional and not willful. We call it uncleanness. It is simply inherited. It's something that we suffer from. It's part of our nature. It is part of our fallenness, and there's a system for dealing with that. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. For more than 1,200 years, the system that has been set up in our reading this morning was the normal worship of the people of God. It's amazing to me that we Christians, we biblical Christians, don't understand it. When Jesus came to the Jews more than 2,000 years ago, this was the system that was in place. The people that he spoke to had been trained by God through this system to understand their need for cleansing, to understand their need for a sacrifice to solve their essential difficulty with God. Every word of the New Testament was written by a man who grew up under this system and lived it week in and week out a system that was laid down in God's law. We cannot just turn our back on it and pretend it's no longer interesting to us. In this passage, before the tabernacle started operating as the tabernacle, God first tells Moses to clean and to separate the Levites. Now, you know that holiness is separation. It is separateness. God is cleaning and he's separating the Levites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, 
the tribe from which the priest will come. But remember, of course, that God is already cleaning and separating the entire nation of Israel. All of the chosen people have been called out of the world. They've been separated from the world and they've been made holy. We, the church, are a separated people. We are a holy people. If we look just like the world, then we are not Christians. And those of you who are interested in attracting the world, if you look just like the people you want to attract, they will not come to you because you won't have anything that they need. We need to be different from the world that is dark and that is dying. The only way to love this world, if you love this world, is to be separate from this world, to be the city that is on a hill to which they can go. God instructs Moses to separate and to purify the Levites. These are the priests, and there are four sacrifices mentioned in this process. There's the grain offering, there's the sin offering, there's the burnt offering, and then there's the wave offering. The grain offering has to do with thanksgiving. It's a daily offering of praise to God. The sin and the burnt offerings are the ones that deal with the problem of sin and death in our lives, and they involve the death of an animal. An animal has to die. In the burnt offering, the entire animal, which has been slaughtered and whose lifeblood was caught in a specially designed cup, is burned on an altar in the tabernacle. All of the body is consumed by that fire. All of it rises up before the nostrils of God as a pleasing odor. There is also the sin offering in which the animal is slaughtered. The lifeblood is caught in a special cup, but only a portion of it is burned in the fire. And the rest of it is kept to be eaten by the priests as part of their daily rations. The blood that's caught in these sacrifices is then sprinkled on the altar or smeared on the altar or poured on the altar depending upon uh, the particular kind of sacrifice. It is that blood that cleans and washes away the sin. Ah, but there is one more thing to say about the sin offering and the burnt offering. Before the animal is killed, while the animal is still alive, the person who has brought the offering would lay his hands on the head of the beast and confess his sins. And then the throat would be slit. There's an image here of what's going on. A divinely appointed image that the animal is going to receive and absorb the sin, will bear the sin, and the animal will die for that sin. The animal dies instead of us who deserve to die, the animal who is innocent and spotless. The animal's lifeblood is poured out as a payment for our sin. This is the instruction of God for his people. This is God's teaching his people, about the nature of sin. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's how it's done. 
Don't ask me why. That's just how God set things up. There is something symbolic. There is something metaphorical. There's something allegorical going on in this enacted parable of the sacrifice. The same was true of the cross, by the way. The same will be true when we come to this table this morning. We don't make the mistake of thinking that the wine actually turns into blood or that Christ is sacrificed again this morning, but we do, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, believe that there is a spiritual truth that these physical things are pointing toward. Okay? The physical things are just signs, and we don't need to focus on the signs. We need to focus on the, the thing that the sign is pointing to. If you want to get to Philadelphia, you find the sign that says Philadelphia, and it's got an arrow on it. Well, you don't stay there at the sign and hang out on the sign. You move past the sign. Sign is useful, but the sign is not the goal. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Each one of us in this room has enough sin on our accounts to damn us to eternal separation from God. Our sin, by the way, will be paid for one way or another. It will be paid for either by our own blood, if we choose to remain damned, or it will be paid for by the blood of Christ if we cast ourselves upon the mercy of God and ask him for his forgiveness. What we know from Scripture is that God is very quick to forgive. He wants to forgive. He's looking for ways to forgive. He sets up the means so that our sins can be forgiven. In Christ, he does it through his own blood. Now think about that for a second. God, who is the one who is offended by our sins, sets up a system so that our offense can be removed. God sets up a system whereby he lays down his own life for us in his son so that we can be forgiven. That's how much he's interested in being reconciled to us. The offer is made. We need to accept that offer. Numbers chapter 8, verse 12 reads this way. Tell the Levites to put their hands on the heads of the bulls one bull will be a sin offering and the other will be used as a burnt offering. These offerings will make the Levites pure. The Levites are purified. They're made holy. Moses does this so that they, well, the problem is they have to serve in the tabernacle and God is present in the tabernacle and if they're not pure and they step into the tabernacle, they're going to be killed. So honestly, it's just for their own protection. These sacrifices are made so that the Levites can do their job without being struck dead when they go into the tabernacle. God sets this up. He purifies them. He makes them holy. But there's one more sacrifice that's still required. We meet that in verse 13 and verse 15. God says, Tell the Levites to stand in front of Aaron and his sons. Then give the Levites to the Lord. They will be like an offering. 
Now notice, there were offerings that were made for the Levites, but in, in turn, then the Levites become an offering. They become an offering to God. So the Levites, so make the Levites pure and give them to the Lord as a wave offering. After you do this, they can come and do their work in the meeting tent. Now, this wave offering is an offering that would be brought to God. It would be waved in front of God saying, hey, God, this is yours. I'm committing this to you. I'm commending it to you. I'm actually going to keep it for myself. I'm going to continue to use it. It would not be burned up on the altar. The wave offering is a living sacrifice. Okay, And so these Levites, they're purified by the sacrifice that produces the death of the animal, but then their life becomes a wave offering. They're going to live their whole life as a sacrifice to God. They're going to give it to God. They're going to uh, uh, turn it over to God. They are committed to God. It's that fourth sacrifice which closes the loop. Now, if you've been with us during this sermon series through the book of Numbers, you may remember that God takes the entire tribe of Levites as his payment for the redemption of Israel. They are God's hostages, in a sense, held in exchange for the lives that he spared on the night of the Passover. They belong to God, but God doesn't kill them. He keeps them alive. And he uses them in his own service. Their lives are a living sacrifice to God. And they're a benefit to the nation and a benefit to the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, When I came to you, this is Paul the Pharisee, Paul the Jew, Paul the converted, reluctant Christian, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the mystery about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. What the law of God delivered to the people of God at Mount Sinai makes available to us is the knowledge of the path of righteousness that God wants us to walk. Let's pretend for a second that we don't know good from evil. Let's pretend that our ignorance makes us not responsible or not guilty for our evil. Well, once we have the law of God, we know. We are now without excuse. We know that lying and cheating and stealing and coveting and murdering are evil because God told us and we no longer have an excuse. And so the law of God shows us the right way to live, the healthy way to live, the righteous way to live. It is a light to our path. If we live according to the law, that's called righteousness. If we live according to the law, we do prosper. God does favor us. Our lives will be long and blessed. But there's this problem that those of us who know the law still don't live according to the law. God, that is so beautiful. Where's that child? I wanna, is that Anna? 
Oh, she's great. Thank you, Anna. Perfect baby. God gives us his law, and what the law reveals to us is, is that we don't live the way that God wants us to live, and so we have this problem, and so God sets up a sacrificial system to deal with this problem, and God's people lived with this system for more than a thousand years. All of it points toward the cross. Big things happen when Jesus comes into the world. God sends his own son into the world. In Jesus, we have the full revelation of God. We had a partial revelation of God before. God's revelation is a progressive revelation. He doesn't uh, un un unveil all of his cards at the beginning, but the full revelation comes in Christ. And there's an updating of the covenant with God's people. And God's own son becomes the sacrifice that's demanded under the sacrificial system. He becomes the once and for all time sacrifice. He becomes the spotless lamb of God who takes away not his own sins, but your sins. And his death is important enough to atone for the sins of all people who have placed their faith in him. We needed more than a thousand years of animal sacrifice to be trained in this truth, to understand this idea of sin and its expiation through the shedding of blood. And that thousand plus years of animal sacrifice reached its pinnacle when Jesus, who lived a sinless life, was crucified by God. God kills his own son to pay the price for the sins of all who will call upon the name of Jesus. The thief dying on the cross right next to him lived a miserable life. He deserved everything that he got. Ah, but in those last moments of his life, he believes in Christ and he was with him in paradise that same day. How about you? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb of God? Have you been sprinkled clean by the shed blood of Christ? In Romans chapter 3, we read that while the law of God delivered at Mount Sinai reveals to us our own sins and our failures, even while it pointed out the righteous path of life, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. That righteousness, the righteousness of the gospel, is a righteousness that is imputed to us by imputed, I mean that God assigns it to you. You actually didn't earn it, okay? God just gives you credit for it. When you have faith in Christ, what happens is, is that the righteousness of Christ, he has the perfect righteousness, gets put on you. Okay, there's a double exchange that we talk about that happens in the atonement. When you place your faith in Christ, you're, you're united to Christ. You become part of Christ. You're grafted into the vine, right? This is, these are some of the images that Jesus uses. And when you're united to Christ, everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. Your sin is removed. It's, it's nailed to the cross. It's paid for. It needed to be paid for. Jesus did that preemptively for you. Your sin goes away. Your record is clean. You're forgiven, which sort of gets you halfway home. 
What you also need is the righteousness of Christ because Christ did not only die for you, he also lived a sinless life for you. And so all of the credit, all of the merit that belongs to Christ becomes yours. All right? We give God our filthy rags, and God gives us these robes of righteousness. And it's with those robes of righteousness that we gather around this table today. All right? Kingdom of God is going to be one big feast. And we're told in the Bible that it's going to be the best meat and the finest wines. This is a little sampling. This is a foretaste of the celebration that's going to happen at the grand reunion. Those who have been united with Christ are welcome to this table. This table is not a Presbyterian table. Anybody who has been united to Christ by faith and has been baptized as a sign of that is welcome at this table this day. Okay? We gather around this table at the command of Jesus. He is our host at this table. We gather around this table and we remember what it is that Jesus accomplished. It takes us all the way back to numbers, to the sacrificial system. We remember that Jesus was a sacrifice. His lifeblood was poured out to pay for our sins. At the Last Supper, Jesus lifts up that cup and he says, you know, this cup is my blood shed for you for the remission of sins. All right? Jesus knew what was going to happen to him and we remember that here in this place this day. We will gather at this table this day as people who are redeemed in Christ by faith in Christ. Christ did it all, and we celebrate him in coming to this place today. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the long years and centuries that you traveled with your people and taught them. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy. We thank you for giving us your law so that we understand what it is that you expect of us and how we're to live. And we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives, which convicts us of sin, which turns us to you to ask for forgiveness. Father God, as we gather here at the Lord's table this morning, we pray that we would come with hearts that are confident and joyful, full of faith, knowing that you have loved us, you have claimed us, you have poured out your shed blood over us, that our sins are forgiven, that we are spotless. Not only are we spotless, but we carry on our shoulders the weight of the full righteousness of Christ. We come to this table, those who are worthy. We thank you for that gift, that free gift. Give us the faith to believe that this day. May we receive this sacrament in a worthy manner.